series today on Elisha, the prophet of restoration. If you got your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. And we're going to dive right into one of the first miracles that he performed. Uh, let's read about it first. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 19. If you want to stand with me for the reading of the word, that'd be great. Am I echoing or is that me? As long as it's just at me, I don't care. Y'all are okay? All right. 2 Kings 2.19. Then the men of the city, the city being Jericho. Yeah, I'm getting feedback here, Steve. Said to Elisha, please notice the situation of the city. Now notice how they describe Jericho. Pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad. The water is bad. And the ground, as a result of that, is barren. And he said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the source of the water. He went to the source of the water and cast in the salt there. And said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From it there shall be no more death or barrenness. Now look at verse 22. So the water remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today, and that every word in this Bible is breathed out by God. And we pray that you will make it alive to our hearts today, that we would see New Testament application, New Testament truth from this Old Testament story. Thank you that all these things were written for our benefit in the name of Jesus. Everybody said amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them it's going to be good today. Now I'm going to try to give you a quick scan through what I call the dynamic duo, Elijah and Elisha. Two huge prophetic presences in the Old Testament. I like reading about them almost more than anything else in the Old Testament. I love the story of Elijah and Elisha. They were very, very different. Though Elijah was the father, that is, the leader, the mentor, and Elisha more or less his son in the faith, and he watched him and followed him and learned from him, the two men were very, very different. Elijah was the prophet of fire. He was the confronter. He was the declarer. He was always called by God to address sin and to deal with sin in Israel. That's pretty much all you ever see him doing. Elijah was secluded. He was a loner by nature. You never find him hanging around with people. Anytime he appears on the scene, he appears alone. He delivers a word from God, and then he disappears back into seclusion, where I guess he just spent time with God. He was a man a child of the desert. He didn't like being in populated places. Elisha was very, very different. Elisha dwelt in cities and towns. When you find him, he was always surrounded by people. He loved being with people. He was often a counselor to kings and who's who's. His ministry was very different from Elijah's. Elisha's ministry was one of healing and restoration and kindness and almost non-confrontational, though there were times he did confront, he was very, very different. 
if you go to the beginning in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, it just says, And Elijah the Tishbite, suddenly there he is. He is a mystery. We don't know anything about him. We don't know how God raised him up. We only know where he was from. We know nothing of his parents, nothing of any other siblings. We don't know anything about where this man came from. Suddenly, Elijah the Tishbite. He is a very mysterious character. He was raised up by God for a reason. And you need to understand the reason today because it matters when it comes to Elisha. King Ahab had married a Canaanite woman. This Canaanite woman was a worshiper of Baal. She led the entire nation of Israel into a backslidden state of worshiping idols instead of the living God. God had spoken to Israel over and over again, and they had denied his word, refused to repent, and refused to turn to him. So God, in the mystery of his workings, off somewhere in the shadows of some desert, raised up one man. This one man appeared on the scene, walks up to King Ahab. When he walked up to King Ahab, Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, the queen of Israel, had already ordered the slaughter of all the prophets of God. Hundreds of them had been killed, martyred, because they worshipped the true Jehovah and not an idol called Baal. She had declared genocide on anybody who worshipped Jehovah. There was an edict. Ahab had given her the power to exterminate every prophet of God. So they were hiding in caves, fearing for their lives every day because of this one woman who worshipped Baal and did not worship the true and the living God. Ahab was basically a milquetoast husband who refused to stand up to his wife. Though he got warning after warning from God, he would not repent. So Elijah, the Tishbite, suddenly appears and says, it's not going to rain. Get a hold of this now. It's not going to rain until I say so. He looked bizarre. He had kind of crazy hair. He wore animal skins. He was not sophisticated. He was not a who's who. Nobody knew who the man was. But he said to Ahab, it's not going to rain in this entire land until I say so and judgment fell on the land of Israel and weeks turned into months and months turned into three years and then three and a half years and then the land began to cry and to wail because of the famine that came from no rain think about it there was not a drop of rain from heaven nor any dew on the ground what would that do to us in Texas and if you're wondering about the weather in Israel, let me promise you, it gets roasting hot. I've been there. In that desert, it'll hit 120 degrees. No rain, no dew on the ground. And at first, they thought he was crazy. But then the words of Elijah the Tishbite, the prophet of God, began to haunt them, began to speak to them began to follow them around and talk to them and tap them on the shoulder, finally yelled at them, God has you under judgment. You have got to turn. Elijah the Tishbite finally appeared again. He first appeared to the minor prophet Obadiah. And Obadiah said, I don't go anywhere because he was, had such a, there was such a mystery about him that people believed he would just disappear. So Obadiah said, don't go anywhere while I go get the king. Then he appeared to the king. And he said, I'll tell you what, 
since Baal is the god of fire, then I challenge you to a duel. You get all the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, you gather them around, and we're going to make an altar. We're going to erect an altar. And we're going to put a couple of slain animals on it. And we're going to dig a trench and fill that trench with water and douse the entire offering in water. And you call out on your God. And this one man, think about it, everybody, one man stood in opposition to the direction of an entire nation and put his entire faith and testimony of the living God on the line. Go ahead, call out to Baal. And all these prophets of Baal began to call out. Nothing happened. Elijah had said, the God who answers by fire, he is the, the true and the living God. They called and they called and they called. Finally, they got frantic and grabbed stones and began to cut themselves with stones. It was a terrible, terrible parade of a fake religion and a fake faith. No fire fell. Finally, Elijah, alone, by himself, having walked with God alone all of his life, stood and said, let the God who answers by fire be God. He looked and prayed, God, if you are God, answer by fire. And out of heaven, out of a clear blue sky that had not seen rain or clouds in three and a half years, fire fell like a torrent, hit that offering licked up the water around the trenches, burned it to a crisp. They all hit the ground and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. <laughs> then Elijah took a sword, and he took those 450 prophets of Baal down into a valley, and he executed them in the name of the Lord because they had overseen the slaughter of children offered in fire to the God of Baal. They were murderers, and he executed judgment on them. Then he went up and prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed until finally rain fell and soaked and saturated the entire area. Ahab fled home like a good husband, reported to Jezebel everything that Elijah had done. Instead of repenting, the woman got furious, and she said, may the gods, plural, fake gods, phony gods that I worship, do the same thing to me by this time tomorrow if he is not dead. Elijah had a breakdown. He fell apart on the inside. All that ministry, all that pressure, all that stress, he snapped. And he got up and ran from one woman when he had been instrumental in bringing an entire nation to its knees before God. He ran into the wilderness, took a servant with him, got under a juniper tree, and there he reached a low moment in a low valley. And he said, Lord, it's enough. Take away my life. I'm not better than my father's. God said, you got two things you need. I want you to sleep and I want you to eat. You're depressed. Eat and sleep. Sleep and eat. And he brought him angel food. And an angel came and gave him something supernatural. And in the power of that food, he went 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. And up into that mountain he went, and he went into a cave. And in that cave, the mighty Elijah was having a serious conflict with his faith. And I'm going to tell you why. Because he knew that Jezebel was the key person who had been releasing Baalism into Israel. 
and he knew that that woman had not bowed her knee, had not broken, had not bent before God, and he felt like he had failed because he knew if I don't get her, if she doesn't repent, if she doesn't turn, it's just going to be re-instituted into Israel again. And he was feeling like a failure, and he was in depression, and God realized something about him. Elijah had become so accustomed to the works of the Lord, the power of God moving. He had become so accustomed to mighty acts of power, fire falling, rain falling, rain stopping, all these incredible acts of nature, that he had gotten disassociated from the Lord of the work. Because it says God called him to the mouth of the cave, and then God made fire pass by him, and it roared through the valley. And then the Bible makes a point of saying, but God was not in the fire. He sent it, but he wasn't the fire. You see, God was showing him the difference between what he did and who he was. Because you can get so involved in the work of the Lord, you get disattached and removed from the Lord of the work. Then God sent an earthquake, and the whole valley shook, and rocks rolled, and the whole thing, this great big thunder and roll, and yet it says God was not in the earthquake. Then he sent a, the blast of a wind, and the wind roared through the valley, howled past him, but God wasn't in the wind. And then it says God spoke to him in a still, small voice. And when he heard that still, small voice, he went, ah, the works of the Lord just passed by me, but that is the Lord of the works. God said, good to see you again. And so he wrapped his face in his with a mantle, wrapped his face with a mantle, which is a sign of respect for authority. And he walked out, and God said, your life is not over. God said, what is wrong with you? And he said, I've been very zealous for you, and they've killed all your prophets, and I'm the only one left, which is what depression always tells you, that you're totally alone, and there's nobody else there. And it's always a lie. But watch this now. God said, your work is not over, and you have not failed. I'm going to give you three things to do. Listen, when God's going to lead you on and lead you out of depression, God gives you a new assignment. He gives you something new to do. He said, here's what you're going to do, Elijah. I want you to anoint Hazael, king over Syria. I want you to anoint Jehu, the king of Israel. And I want you to anoint a man named Elisha as prophet in your stead. Now hold it a minute. You know what hits me about this? God knew about Elisha before Elisha knew that God knew about Elisha. Catch this now, because Elisha, where is he when God's telling Elijah this? He's off in some field. He's a farmer. He's a husbandman. He's plowing. He has no idea that his walk with God, his desire for God, his heart for God had been noticed by God and that God was at that very moment speaking to the most major prophet on earth at that time and naming his name to him. And not only that, telling him what he was going to do for the rest of his life. Can I tell you something about you? God knows about you before you know he knows about you. God knows your name before you know he knows your name. He knows what you're going to do before you ever do what you're going to do. God has your number before you know he's got your number. God knows where you are, what you're doing, where your heart is, and how much you really want him. And he's talking. See, Elijah was the type of Christ. And so was Elisha. 
Elijah was a type of Christ, though. He was really a type of Christ. And here is God talking about the t to the type of Christ about a man that we haven't even met yet. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows where you're going to be next year. He knows where you're going to be 10 years from now. He knows how you're going to glorify him. He knows the gifts that are in you. He knows what he's grooming you for before you even know you're being groomed for it. Because Elisha, all he knew was, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just a farmer plowing the field. And yet just a few miles away, God is setting up his life. Only God can do that. Elijah says, yes, sir. He leaves. You know what strikes me about those three assignments God gave him? Elijah was destined to only do one, and he's about to do it. The first two anoint Hazael, or Hazael, king over Syria, and Jehu, king over Israel, would be left for Elisha. He was only going to do one of them. And doing that one was going to take care of the other two. See, folks, sometimes what God has for you is so big, so massive, so long-reaching, so far-reaching, that he's got to have you anointing somebody else, mentoring somebody else, because you're not going to be able to do it all by yourself. Somebody else is going to have to finish projects that God gave you. So he goes, and he's walking on his way to Damascus. And the first time we meet Elisha, Elijah is walking on his way to Damascus, sees him plowing in the field, takes off his mantle, and casts it on him and says, follow me. Is that a type of Jesus or what? Follow me. Elisha knew enough in the dealings of God with his own heart, he knew what the mantle meant. Because it says immediately he put the plow down. Something had already told him. He didn't need an explanation from the man because the man didn't tell him anything. He just threw the mantle on him. The first time he threw the mantle on him, it was to follow him, and it was for servanthood. The second time the mantle would fall on him, it would be to walk as prophet in Elijah's stead. Listen, folks. When Jesus calls you, that mantle going on Elisha, it's just like the word of the Lord that came to the disciples when they were on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus cast his word on them. He said, follow me, and I'm going to make you to become something. I'm going to make you to become fishers of men. I'm going to make you not only to fish for men, but you are going to literally be fishers of men because I'm going to change you. And his mantle fell on them. But look what they did. They, they at first went and just served Jesus. The second time the mantle fell, it was when Elijah was raptured up into heaven, and the mantle fell on Elisha, and he picked it up and began to walk in the office of the prophet like Elijah had. The second time Jesus did that, Jesus ascended. And when Jesus ascended, he cast the mantle on those disciples again in the form of the Holy Ghost. And this time it wasn't just for servanthood, but it was to walk in the office he had walked in to reach people like he had. That Holy Ghost fell just like it did in the Old Testament, the mantle on Elijah and Elisha. It fell on the disciples in the form of the Holy Ghost the second time around, and they went about doing good and healing all who were afflicted by the devil. So he cast the mantle on him, and Elisha begins to follow him. And we don't hear about Elisha again until Elijah is coming to the end. And he's walking towards the Jordan, and he's going through towns. 
He wants to go minister to the prophets, the sons of the prophets, who have been raised up to prophesy sort of his, his, uh, his pupils. And he wants to go address them and be with them and minister to them before he's taken up. He knows he's about to be taken up. They know he's about to be taken up. They even tell Elisha, do you know that today your master is going to be taken up into glory? He said, I know it, I know it. Shut up. I can't take my eyes off him. I've learned that if I'm going to get what he has, I've got to keep my eyes peeled on him. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, you won't get anything done unless you learn to keep your eyes peeled on him. You've got to keep your eyes fastened on him. As long as you're fastened on him, you'll do what he did. Think like he thought. Walk like he walked. You've got to keep your eyes. And Elisha had learned, if I'm going to get what he's got, I've got to keep my eyes on him. 450 sons of the prophets said, he's about to be taken away. I know, I know, be quiet. Elijah tested him. He comes to one town and says, I'm going to move on. You stay here. He said, uh-uh, no, 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 no. I'm not leaving your side. Elijah said, very well. He goes to the next town. Now, I'm going I'm to move on. You stay here. No, 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 you don't get it. My eyes are glued on you. You're going to have to tie me down or I'm going to follow you because I've learned I don't leave your side. He comes to the next town. Come on, stay here. I've got to cross the Jordan. I'm going across that Jordan with you. He said, what do you want from me? Now we come to Elisha. What do I want from you? I want a double portion of the spirit that has rested on you. He asked a hard thing. Who said that? Elijah. You've asked for a hard thing. You know, folks, we ought not be afraid to ask for something hard, something difficult, something that only God can do. He said, you've asked a hard thing. It's going to have to be God that does this. And he said, here's the key. If you're looking at me, when I'm taken up, then you will have what you asked for. If you're not, you're not going to get it. Can you imagine the stiff neck he had? As they began to walk now, because he's watching him like a hawk. You mean I got to see it when you get taken up? It says they went along and they talked. I was thinking, I'd love to know what they were talking about. Because the man's about to be raptured. Only the second person in the Old Testament and the second and the only one, not anybody after him, he's about to be raptured, taken into heaven, alive. And so he says, I know I'm about to be taken. Elijah said to him, but you better watch me. You better keep your eyes on me. When I go up, you better be looking at it. Keep your eyes on me. He said, you got it. And they're walking along talking and all of a sudden while the sons of the prophets were standing on the other side of the Jordan there appeared a miracle out of heaven now folks this is a type of what is going to happen one day to you and me on planet earth because suddenly there was a chariot of fire and horses of fire and suddenly Elijah was whisked up by the power of God I guess he was in the chariot. Maybe he was taking the reins and doing like this. I don't know, but up he went. And Elisha said, my father, my father, my father, my father. The chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. I see it, I see it, I see it, I see it, I see it. Elisha. Out of heaven falls an object. Hits the dust dust kicks up. He reaches down in front of all the sons of the prophets who are over on the other side of the Jordan. And it's the mantle. 
the same one thrown on him years before when he was just a farmer. But he's no farmer anymore. He fixed it up. Now I look something up. Your Bible will tell you that he then walked to the Jordan that Elijah had divided. And your Bible will say that it says that he said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? But you know, the Hebrew does not really say that. You know what it says? Yea, he. You wonder where yea, yea came from? Yea, he. I got to think, what was he thinking about? Well, I remember that when Elijah called fire down from heaven, they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What he was doing, he was so overwhelmed with emotion. He was so taken back by what had happened to him. He was just saying, he, calling out on God. Yea, he. And he struck that water, and the Jordan divided. And he walked over to the sons of the prophets, carrying the mantle of Elijah. Elisha, Elisha, Elisha was so very, very different now. They invite him into Jericho. One of the first miracles he does is this one. Are y'all being blessed so far? I'm going to move into something now. Now, now he, now you're going to notice the manifestation of this man's ministry is very different, but it's just as powerful. He prayed for the double portion. He got it. He performed 13 miracles when he was alive. One happened when he was dead. God is true to his word even if you have died. He watches over his word to perform it even if you've gone on. But he comes to Jericho, and now the sons of the prophets know that he's carrying Elijah's mantle. And so they have a problem. And here's the problem. Jericho, that was called the Garden of the Lord, is beautiful. It's breathtaking. But it has bitter water. One commentator wrote these words. The poisoned springs caused diseases among the inhabitants and caused the trees to cast their fruit prematurely. So death and miscarriage cast their shadow over Jericho. People were dying and the fruit trees were casting their fruit before their time, which is always a picture of the lack of the blessing of God. Now there is a New Testament application here, and I want you to get this. Water often symbolizes what proceeds or flows out of the heart. Water symbolizes what flows out of the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart. Say that with me. Keep your heart with all diligence. Watch this. And above all that you guard, for out of it flow the springs. Out of it flow the springs. Out of your heart flows the springs of life. And Jesus said about the heart in Matthew 15, 18, but what comes out of the mouth flows out of the heart, and this is what makes a man unclean. So here you've got Jericho. I see Jericho, a picture of humanity. What Elisha faced gives us a New Testament truth. And here's what it is. The city of Jericho, it's pleasant. It's beautiful to look at. It's breathtaking. It's Jericho, the garden of the Lord. But it's got a problem. It's got a problem. It's filled with potential. It's a beautiful creation. But there's a problem with what is flowing out of it. 
It's a beautiful creation. Man built Jericho, beautiful place. But what is flowing out of it is poison. Jesus said man is a beautiful creation, created in the very image of God. But until you come to him and give him your heart, what flows out of that beautiful creation is poison water, and it causes the works of your life to be miscarried, and it causes death. Come on, everybody. Elisha is a picture of Christ here. He's a picture of Jesus. He's going about everywhere healing what has been twisted or perverted or wronged. And so he had a solution. He said, I've got a solution for the spring, the bitter water that is flowing out of this town, out of this city. And he said, I'm asking now for some salt. And I got to thinking, the Bible is full of teaching about salt. In the Bible, salt represents that which preserves from decay, that which preserves from corruption. It also represents that which creates thirst. And Jesus said to you and to me, you are the salt. Look at your neighbor and say, you seem salty today. <laughs> See, when you're full of the Holy Spirit, when you're walking with God, you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to hold back the decay that sin would bring on the world, and you're supposed to create thirst in the spiritual lives of people who see Jesus in you. This happened to me. I went to a Bible study when I was like 18 years old, and these people, they were a bunch of hippies, long hair, wire rim glasses, blue, uh, bell-bottom blue jeans and all of that, but they were worshiping God and tears were flowing down their face. And I remember it made me jealous. I got jealous. I wanted what they had. You know what they were being right then and there? Salt. It made me thirsty. Listen, God wants churches. He wants believers. He wants you. He wants me to make people thirsty for God. But I thought it was really interesting that Elisha asked for salt. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You're to be a preservative in stopping the spread of sin. And you ought to be creating thirst in the lives of other people. But then as I began to dig, I found that salt meant much more. It stood for covenant. Now listen, there was a reason Elisha asked for salt. Listen to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. God says, every offering of your grain offering, you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant, the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking. With every offering, you shall offer salt. It was called the salt covenant. The grain offering was the sin offering for the poor. When he asked for salt, he knew the symbolic meaning behind salt. It was more than making you thirsty, more than preventing decay. He was thinking of covenant. Do you know that we serve a God of covenant? Do you know that he has covenanted to always watch over you? He has covenanted to never let you go. He has covenanted to get you into heaven. He has covenanted to protect you, to guard you, to guide you, and to keep you all the days of your life. Do you know that you are under a mighty covenant? Do you know that it wasn't written with ink? It wasn't written with a pencil? It wasn't written with a quill or a pen? It was written with the blood of the sacrificed Lamb of God. It's the new covenant. Elisha is looking at a bitter spring that is killing the entire land. And he said, there is an answer. There is an answer. And I want salt because I know the answer is the covenant of God. Now I'm going to tell you folks something. We've got a heart problem. 
Our nation has a heart problem. It is not a Democrat problem, a Republican problem, a Green Party problem. It is not a personality problem. It is not, listen, it is not a crime problem. We've got a heart problem. I notice here that it says when Elisha asked for the salt, that he took it and went to the source of the water. He didn't just throw it in any old place. He went to the source of the water. You know where God goes when he wants to deal with you and me? He goes to the source of the problem, and the source is the heart. I'm going to say it again. The source is the heart. It's a heart problem. He goes to the source, and what does he apply to the source? He applies covenant, the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant. Can I just preach Jesus for a minute here today? Listen, there is only one answer for the bitter spring that flows out of your heart because it's a heart problem. We need heart transplants. Just yesterday, a member of our church uh, was on the golf course and uh, suddenly he got some indigestion. Before you knew it, he was having a heart attack, got taken to the hospital, and I got to thinking about the heart. I got to just pondering about the heart, knowing what I was going to speak on today. And I just reminded myself that really most of the issues in our world today are heart issues. Because Jesus said it all comes out of the heart. Fornications and drug abuse and every kind of sin comes from the heart. And he said, I came to give you a heart transplant. I go to the source. Listen to Ezekiel. Here's the covenant God made. 11 verse 19. Then I will give to you one heart and I will put a new spirit within you and take away the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Listen to what Jesus said, knowing about the covenant that he was making with us. He said, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, notice, out from his innermost being, his heart, springs and rivers of living water shall flow. From where? They flow out of a born again heart. Man, here's Elisha. He takes that salt. He says, where's the source of this thing? Where's the source of the stream? They took him to the source of the spring, and he poured the salt of covenant there. And i got to think, isn't that just what Jesus does when he comes knocking on the door of your life? He doesn't mess around with weeds, weeds that are sticking up out of the ground. He goes to the root. He goes to the source. He goes to the heart. And after you're saved... When you have issues, I guarantee you the vast majority of the time they are heart issues. And again, you got to let him get to your heart. You got to let him touch your heart. You got to let him change your heart. That's why we read the Bible, because it changes our heart. We're being renewed day by day by the renewal of our minds, talking about the heart. Come on, everybody. It says Elijah poured salt. Elisha poured the salt of covenant into the source of the water, and immediately the entire spring was healed. And watch this now. Death and miscarrying stopped. Do you know what kind of life you're living before Jesus comes into your heart? It's a life of death and miscarriage. You're not ever going to know the will of God for your life, not ever going to walk in it, not ever going to fulfill it, not ever going to know your destiny or walk in your destiny unless you let the New Testament Elisha, Jesus Christ himself, 
Go to the source, that is your heart, and let your heart be born again and let him touch your heart. Because when he goes to the source, then the whole spring is healed. Come on, everybody. It's the same thing with those of us who are healed by new covenant salt. The new covenant salt is the blood of Jesus and the Holy Ghost of the living God. That's the new covenant salt. Death loses its sting and God's purposes for us are no longer aborted. I was listening to football players be interviewed this week on a sports radio station. And it so struck me. One of them, he was just 26 years old. He'd sign some ungodly contract, how many millions of dollars to carry a pigskin, a few yards. But you know, as I listened, he was a nice guy. He really seems to be a nice guy. Millions and millions of dollars just because he was born, you know. <laughs> and as I listened to him, I couldn't help but notice that this young man had grasped the brevity the briefness of what this world offers. Because he said, when this is all over with, I'm already in college, and I'm going to finish and I'm going to be a financier because I know that very soon this will be over with. And when I walk into a restaurant, they won't usher me past all the waiting lines. I'll have to wait with everybody else. They won't treat me like a hero anymore. They won't pat me on the back and say, that was a great game, or how'd you let that happen in that game? Nobody will even notice me. In just a few years, when the glory's gone and I'm a financier. In one month, I've buried two people, neither one of which believed that the day they passed away was their day. And I just got to thinking how important it is that you realize that though you're gifted, though you have potential, I thought of this football player, gifted, he was, he was bright, he was talking intelligently. I got to thinking, there he is, with all this potential, a creation of God, and yet, out of his heart, was flowing a spring of materialism, money, focus on things that pass away. Even though he knew football was passing, he was not thinking about eternity, I could tell. But let me, I got news for him. You think football is going to go quick? You're going to wake up one day and go, what happened to my vision? <laughs> or you're going to find yourself walking around your house going, huh, what, huh, huh? And you and your wife are going to have to have bullhorns to hear each other. Kathy and I went to Sawgrass Steakhouse last night to get some of that anointed beef. <laughs> and I have a little deal, I can't drink coffee after six. If I drink coffee after six, it's gonna run a number on me, but I, for some reason I thought that last night I was invulnerable. So I ordered coffee, she said, you know what that's gonna do to you? I said, nah, I, I feel pretty tired already. Two o'clock this morning. I'm looking at that clock. 
Finally, I got so mad that you couldn't, I couldn't have slept. If you'd have had a gun to my head, I couldn't have done it because I was mad. Because 210, 220, 222, 223, 223 and a half. How am I going to preach tomorrow? God, knock me out. And he said, I can't. You drank coffee. She told you not to do it. Finally, I just got up and decided to intercede for this service today. It's a good thing I did because I'm going on Holy Ghost power right now, not flesh. But see, your life is never going to change, ever. Rehabilitation is not renovation. It's not a new creation. It's never going to change till Elisha goes to the source and pours covenant blood on it. And your heart is born again. And then you let him change your heart when it's needed for the rest of your days. Because we all need a heart adjustment almost daily. Elisha, thank you for that miracle. Let me close with this. This blessed me. I looked up the history of this spring. You should know that there is to this day a large and beautiful spring called the Fountain of Elisha, the water of which is neither warm nor cold and has an agreeable and sweet taste. It flows to this day in the Middle East testimony of the fact that when God heals your heart with new covenant salt, it's permanent. It's a forever work. The bitter was made sweet by covenant. Amen. Well, let's stand again today and just thank the Lord for that new covenant blood. And he's touched the source of our problem, which is our heart. And if he has not touched your heart, do you know that he's as far away from you today as a prayer? And you may be in some trouble today of some kind or another, and I want to promise you the source of it is a heart somewhere. Yours, somebody you're relating with, but God can touch those hearts. Let me pray for you. If, if God has touched the source of the springs of your life, raise your hands and say, thank you, Jesus. We're going to the source and call and pouring covenant salt and making me a child of covenant. Thank you, Lord. And you can say, Pastor Jeff, I'm having some heart trouble. But I know that Elisha is a picture of Jesus who knows the source. Raise your hand, and I'm going to pray that God touches your heart today. Bless you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would season every heart represented here today with grace. Covenant grace, covenant love, the covenant word, covenant promises. 
Because then we know it heals the spring that goes out into our whole life. Take a minute and say, Lord, I just received this for myself today. Go ahead and just do it. Talk to him.